took four dogs from that that group and went back and got my sled and kind of pieced it together. And uh, the sled was destroyed to the point where there was nothing in front to hold it together. So basically, it was two skis with a big bag dangling in front of it. My skis kept hitting uh, frozen buffalo crap and sent me rolling. <laughs> After having this major head and spine trauma, I got drug about halfway across the burn. And later in the race, I wasn't sure if I could continue on. My back injury was so bad. And I ran into a veterinarian who's also a chiropractor. And he managed to fix me up and got me dialed in. And we made it to know him with no problem. But, but that was a pretty wild time. Episode 117, Sled Dog Racing and the Iditarod with Blake Frecking. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Hey guys, it's Travis. Hey, earlier this week uh, on the Monday episode, Kurt announced our Eldora lift ticket giveaway. I just wanted to let you know, you definitely have time to get in on that. Um, All you have to do is send an email to contest at adventuresportspodcast.com. In the subject line, just put lift ticket. And in the main body, just put your name. We'll draw a winner and uh, let that winner know who they are and get their information to mail them out their ticket. Um, I'll give you a little hint. We don't have a ton of entries so far. So if you're thinking your chances aren't great, well, you know what? Get your entry in there because you have a really good chance of winning. I also wanted to remind you that as long as you refer your friends, you'll get three more entries. So what that means is when your friend, uh, sends their own email to get their entrance into the contest, they can simply Uh, let us know that you referred them. And when they do that, we'll enter you in three more times. They can do the same thing as well. Get out, ski, ride. And to all of our United States listeners, have a happy and safe Thanksgiving. Now on to the show. During the month of March every year, the Iditarod Sled Dog Race is run in Alaska from Willow to Nome and covers more than 1,100 miles over 9 to 15 days or more, depending on the team. 2016 will mark the 43rd year of the race, and three-time Iditarod competitor Blake Frecking is with me today to talk about the incredible adventure sled dog racing is. Blake, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Travis. Nice to be here. Absolutely. Well, I'm excited to hear all about sled dog racing. I think uh, hopefully you got a bunch of cool stories to tell us. I can come up with something. <laughs> That's good. So do us a favor. Um, take a little time to tell us about your background. What is it that got you started in, in sled dog racing? Sure. So the slippery slope that kind of brought me to where I'm at. Um, I started out, I was. I did a lot of cross-country skiing as a kid, and uh, that kind of evolved into uh, hooking a water skiing rope behind my cousin's snowmobile and he would drag me around and do his best to injure me. And that kind of progressed into, I started looking for a dog to start scheduling and I hadn't really heard of scheduling as an official sport or anything else, but I found a Siberian Husky and, uh, hooked it up in front of my skis and, uh, started traveling a bit and ultimately ended up purchasing another dog. And, uh, started doing some camping trips and going some farther distance. And I just, 
uh, really enjoyed doing the long distance kind of runs. And it always amazed me how much country I could cover with just a couple dogs on skis. And after doing that for a few years, I was started looking for another dog, which is how this kind of generally progresses. <laughs> <laughs> Ran into a young lady who happened to be in Alaska training for the junior I did right at the time. And uh, ended up purchasing a lead dog from her. And she was handling at a kennel. And I'll talk more about handling in a little bit. But uh, she was helping out at a kennel up there. And uh, I purchased this dog from her. And the folks that she was living with were both in their mid-80s at the time. And he was going to be in Rochester, Minnesota, near my hometown, having some surgery. And uh, she had asked if I wanted the opportunity to meet them. And they were heroes of mine at the time. And I leapt at the chance, and I drove out to Rochester and uh, met up with Earl and Natalie. And uh, by the end of the conversation, they were inquiring whether I would be interested in coming to their place to handle for a season. And I was pretty green to mushing in general and had a good job. I had finished school and everything else. But uh, something just drew me into this, and I felt like it's something I had to do. I had to go to Alaska and do this. So, um Kind of took a leave of absence, which turned into a permanent leave of absence for my job, and went to Alaska. Um, I started out uh, running their puppies and doing the handler duties, cleaning up after dogs. And after a great season there in Alaska with the Norses, I, uh, they gave me the opportunity to run their team in the Iditarod. So about seven months after my first run on a sled, uh, I was signed up for the biggest race in the world. It was pretty, pretty steep learning curve for me. Holy cow. I would imagine. I don't think many people probably take that path. No, I think you're probably right. But, uh, (laughs) so I came home for that summer and tried to earn a little money and every thought, uh, every thought and action was based on, you know, getting to know them and, 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 uh, so I went back to Alaska in September of 1999 and started training for my qualifiers uh, for Iditarod. This is eternally changing, it seems like, but at that time you had to run a 300-mile qualifier, a 200-mile qualifier. So I got up there and trained up, and uh, my second race was my 200-mile qualifier and finished that uh, quite easily, had a great time. And two weeks later, I ran my 300-miler, um, also had a great, great time, so it's Started the Iditarod in March. Um, it had its pitfalls and, you know, wonderful experiences and overall had a great, great time. Uh, the Norses in Alaska are known for their Siberian Huskies. And I, I really stuck with with that. It's something I'm quite passionate about. Every year there's maybe, maybe two or three Siberian teams that compete in the race. The rest are all crossbred teams. So that kind of sets us apart from the group a little bit. Okay. So, yeah, I was going to ask you about the uh the dogs involved because everybody when we when we think of the Iditarod or or sled dog racing, we always imagine the Siberian Husky, but the dogs can be quite varied, can't they? Yeah, it's the Alaskan Husky is is an open gene pool. It's not a registered breed by any means. They're they're bred entirely for, for performance and racing, you know, these races like Iditarod and the Yukon Quest and some of these distance races. Um, and the Siberian Huskies, the racing bred Siberians are really quite similar to the original Siberians that came in back in the early 1900s. Yeah, that's cool. So you 
kind of picked up the pace pretty quickly when you know you first got to to qualify and run the Iditarod. Was there a moment that that just really struck you as this is what I absolutely love to do? Is there a story behind that? You know, I don't know if there's really one moment. It was actually my first sled run in Alaska, which was in 1998. Um, it just it really just hit me that that was just such an amazing experience. And I knew it was something that was going to stick with me for the rest of my life after that very first run on a sled. But uh, after, after my first Iditarod, um, I came back to Minnesota and ended up working. And I brought a few dogs with me. And that young lady that I bought the dog from <laughs> the year prior got together with her. And she had her kennel. And she was in, the, she was in vet school in, in St. Paul, Minnesota at the time. So we were racing together with her dogs and my dogs together and uh, ran a few races here in Minnesota. And then some circumstances uh, came together and we needed to move the kennel to northern Minnesota where I had some property. And that was in uh, the fall of 2003. So I called a friend of mine in Germany and asked him if he was up for a great adventure and told him we needed to move 50 dogs and all the kennels and fences and supplies and so we moved to northern Minnesota and uh, started training and racing up there. And uh, that year was my rookie in the John Bear Grease Marathon, which is a 400-mile race. It's the longest continuous race in uh, the, the lower 48. And won that as a rookie. So that was a big boost for us um, against some really good teams that had done well in the Iditarod in the past. And since then, uh, I went north and ran the Yukon Quest in 2005, which is the other thousand mile race. And my wife and I, now she's my wife <laughs> and we have two together. <laughs> I skipped that part. Uh, we ran the, I did a ride together in 2008. We started the race about 14 minutes apart and we finished about nine seconds apart. Wow. So that was one of the highlights of my racing career, certainly. And, uh, I ran the, I did a ride again in 2010. And since then, I, I believe I've run every Bear Grease marathon since 2004. And run a lot of races uh, in Montana, Maine, all over Canada, uh, basically all over the lower 48. We've been to Italy racing and Russia as well. Well, these are, you've been involved in a lot of races, and these are not little races. I mean, the, the Iditarod is, what, 1,100 miles or so? Um, the Yukon Quest is 1,000 miles itself. I mean, the, the Bear Grease is, is 400 miles. I mean, you guys are doing a lot of, of running over multiple days. We are, yeah. We're we're putting on in the neighborhood of 3,500 to 4,000 miles a year. It seems like on our teams. Wow. So how do you, how do you prepare for these things? I mean, I would think that you need to have some sort of uh, relationship with a dog, with the teams uh, ahead of time. It's not like you can just throw a pack together and get going. Exactly. And everything we do is based on the dogs. Um, Everything from care to, you know, having a really good, personal relationship with each dog. Um, a lot of people say they know their dogs better than their kids that are in the sport. Um, I'm sure the kids love that. Oh yeah. They love to. Hear that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, everything we do in the training and conditioning is, is year round for us. And it's all about developing them as a sled dog and also creating a great relationship to them because you know, they don't, they don't really realize we're out there to run big races like I did or out of the Bear Grease. They're just, they just run because they love to do it. And we're there to kind of um, create an environment so they know that we'll never ask anything more of them 
than what they can achieve. And, and we're always keeping their best interest in mind, whether it's in training or racing and conditioning. And so their well-being and their nutrition and their training is, is always at the top of our list. Yeah. So you guys are basically, you're building up uh, trust in the dogs and the dogs are uh, in turn building trust in you. Exactly right. Yeah. The more we start that out as puppies, we go on these little, we call them puppy adventures. We go out on walks and we're starting to to push them physically just a little bit. And, and in that, you will know, we'll do things like, like this time of year, we've got a little snow on the ground. So we'll go out with some puppies and they'll get off the trail a little bit and get in some deep snow and they might cry a little because they want they're kind of hoping someone will pick them up or something like that. And if we encourage them with our voice, it starts, it starts with that, you know, you can come to me and get through this and it'll all be good. And, you know, we go from there until we're crossing the Alaska range or something like that. <laughs> That's cool. Well, I'm sure my kids would probably volunteer to come up and, uh, and help you with the puppies at some point. Hey, puppies. <laughs> so I'm sure we have some people out there thinking, you know what? I've always looked at the Iditarod. I've always thought, man, that would be the coolest thing. Why would you encourage people to try it out for themselves? Oh boy. Sled dog racing in general, maybe not the Iditarod for the first one. So sled dogs, you know, it's an interesting sport to get into because it's such a commitment. You know, it's not like a race car or something like that that you can turn the key off and park it in the garage. It's it's 365 days a year. You know, they need care. and So it is a big commitment. So anyone that's looking to get into it really, uh, really has to search themselves and, you know, find out if that's something that they really want. I, I was talking about handling earlier and that's to me that's a great way to step into it a lot of the a lot of the bigger mushers uh bigger kennels have handlers that they employ and what they do is come for a season and in our kennel specifically you know they're helping with the daily routine with the dogs and also usually they end up training some of our teams but also our puppy teams we have we have our main race group, but we also have the yearlings and two-year-olds. We kind of call our junior varsity team. And what they're doing is just, uh, it's a lot of confidence building. And they're doing some races, not to be competitive, but to just see the finish line and experience the race and kind of experiences some of the stresses involved with racing. And But do it, do it on a level that uh, that they know that they're going to succeed. And, and basically, it's just building them up to graduate to the main group. Yeah, they seem to thrive when they're we're on the 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 line together. I mean, it, every time you look at sled dogs in a video somewhere, they're just crazy raring to go. I mean, you have to anchor the thing to keep them from running off. We it's do. Just, I don't. It's crazy that these dogs just get so excited to do what they do. We do have to anchor them to keep them down, and and they'll they will not stop if we fall off the back of the sled. They'll keep going just because that's, <laughs> that's what they're bred to do, and and we don't have to teach them to run or force them to run or even encourage them to run. They, they go on their own. The first time we put them in harness, most of what we're actually trying to do is get them to calm down to a point where they can actually run. A lot of times they're the first time in harness, they're going bonkers and they're chewing their lines and chewing their neighbors and chewing their harness. And (laughs) so a lot of it is, you know, making them into a, a professional athlete also. Right. Right. For 20 years, Bent Gate Mountaineering has been outfitting climbers, skiers, backpackers, and outdoor enthusiasts with the gear they need. Whether climbing an 8,000-meter peak or buying your first backcountry ski setup, Bent Gate is here to help. 
Bentgate is continuing to offer free BC 101 sessions this winter, teaching backcountry ski boot and binding setup, avi safety and beacon practice, clothing systems, and tips and tricks to make your days more enjoyable. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment. Bentgate also has free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a chance for hands-on experience. Be sure to check Bentgate.com for our full product selection as well as updates on all these events. While doing your holiday shopping this season, be sure to stop by 180tac.com and pick up a camp stove for the adventurer on your list. The 180 stove and 180 flame are made right here in the United States and are sure to make your loved one a happy camper. Visit 180tack.com today. So about what age? I mean, what is the the prime or how many years do they run typically? So we'll start them out at about 10 months of age. Uh, We do a lot of free running, which is just basically, you know, conditioning, you know, getting them a little bit muscled up and learning where their feet are and how to run. And we'll usually introduce them to harness at about 10 months of age. And from then, you know, till about a year and a half, it's all just about fun. It's all going out for fun runs and not really training or conditioning. It's just, you know, learning about life as a sled dog, basically. And then they'll graduate up to our junior varsity team where they'll start really training and conditioning for races up to, you know, maybe 100 miles in length, something like that. And then after that, they'll graduate to our, our teams where we're training big miles and, and doing some bigger races. Okay. Now let's go back to skijoring that you had mentioned. I had never heard of that before, and this is basically hooking a dog or two up to a to a tow line and skiing behind them. Is this, I assume, cross-country skiing? Tell me more about that because I'm pretty intrigued with the idea of it. Yeah, so that's how I got involved, and it was a long time. I thought I invented the sport up until I got a uh, a catalog from a company, and there was a book called Skijore with Your Dog, and I was amazed that someone else was actually doing this. <laughs> but uh yeah there's you use a it's basically similar to a climbing harness um without the leg belts basically so it's a harness that you uh you wear and you attach yourself to two dogs and you're cross-country skiing behind them and you know they're using both classic style and skate skiing and and it's a competitive sport as well really so uh, you know these dogs like to pull and pull and pull what happens when you do go down when you're doing this, do you have a way to release them or do you pretty much just anchor them at that point since it's only two dogs? No, if, well, if it's just two dogs, usually you can get them to stop. Generally speaking, they, okay. a lot of times they'll stop or even if they keep trying to pull, usually you can get yourself back up, <laughs> back up on two skis. <laughs> That's cool. It sounds like a lot of fun. So how about a story, um, that was just uh, like the best story being out there in one of these races or just practice and whatnot. What is a, what's one of your greatest experiences? Oh, there's so many experiences, some big and some small, of course. Um, one, one that comes to mind, I was running the Yukon quest and there's, there's a big climb called Eagle summit and we we're having a hard time getting up Eagle summit. And I honestly have no idea how long it took us, but it was, it was the middle of the night. And by the time we got to the summit, uh, dawn was just breaking. It was the most amazing sunrise I've ever seen. So it's, it's little things like that, that really, really set things apart. Um, and a lot of times it's just, uh, a sense of pride. You know, we have these, these dogs that we hold in our hands as puppies and, you know, they're weighing just a pound or two and, uh, to see them 
grow up and then condition themselves to the point where they're finishing a race like I did, Rod, just as it's an enormous sense of pride and accomplishment, uh, both for us and the dogs. Yeah, I'll bet. And when we're conditioning, you know, we're covering, when we're racing, we're covering over 100 miles a day. And for them to, that's another thing that just amazes me is the athleticism in these dogs. You will do a training run tomorrow will be a great, for instance, we're doing a 40 mile run and, and we'll do that before breakfast for, for most humans. That's a pretty major accomplishment for those guys. They just, you know, they'll knock it out in a few hours and, and be back at it. <laughs> yeah, they are amazing. You see him uh, outside and, you know, for a dog to like that to be inside, he'd probably roast, you know, to sleep inside. They just burrow themselves down in the snow and, and go to sleep and wait for the next day where they can run. That's exactly right. We spend all kinds of money on dog houses and bedding and things like that for them. And half the time they don't, they'll rather curl up out in the snow and, and dig a hole. <laughs> So tell me a little bit about the mechanics of it. I mean, you have the sled, um, the dogs are hooked into it. How are you actually controlling the dogs uh, via voice and how responsive are they? Or are they just pretty much picking up a trail and, and going for it and well, a lot with of, a little bit of input? A lot of that's a product of training. So we have um, our lead dogs and there's a lot of a lot of misconceptions about lead dogs, you know, being big alpha males, kind of Jack London kind of stuff. But the lead dogs are generally the, some of the hardest driven dogs in the team. And you want, you want them to be smart enough to be able to pick up your commands and, and cues, um, but also have that drive and be able to keep, that, keep the team lined up. And it's, it's a pretty stressful position, especially with a big team, you know, when you have all these dogs behind them, you know, trying to push the pace and things like that. So a lot of all of our communication is done verbally. We have nothing to really control them otherwise. So we have uh, directional commands: G is right and Haw is left, and we use Woe command to get them to slow down. You know, if we're going over icy conditions and things like that. So, and as far as um, mechanics, as far as braking, we have a mechanical brake on our sled and also a drag pad to help regulate speed. A little bit and then we also have our anchors that we carry on the sled as well we call them snow hooks and we use that when we stop and uh, if we need to go up to tend to any dogs or if we're snacking or anything like that we'll stop and set our snow hooks um, a lot of times we'll try and pull them which this time of year when it's more powdered snow and it's not packed down um, they can pull those hooks pretty easily so they're always raring to go it seems like yeah i would imagine so here's a dumb question. What's actually on the sled during a race? I mean, imagine you, you're, you're over there, you know, nine, 15 days, you're, you do have to take some provisions, um, for in between your stops, but what's actually on the sled? Sure. Like on a race, like I did, Rod, there's, uh, several checkpoints along the way. And prior to the race, we send out all oh, between 1200 and 1600 pounds of primarily dog food out to those checkpoints. And so in our sled, we'll probably have a little bit of human gear and food, but it's primarily dog food. We'll carry jackets for the dogs for when they're resting. Um, sometimes we're carrying straw for the dogs, a little survival stuff for ourselves. And, uh, and we carry a cooker for melting snow, um, for water for the dogs. And, but it's mostly dog food that we're packing. 
Okay. Yeah. I mean, imagine you have to balance that with the weight, obviously. You don't want to load the thing down too much like any other <laughs> type of racing. So that's got to be a tough, um, tough thing. I bet you have to be a bit of a veterinarian to, uh, to run a team like this as well. It's not just like you said, turning up the turning on the ignition of the race car, you got to understand your, your animals. Of course, we're always, um, we're always analyzing gates and, you know, looking for, there's always little injuries that can pop up along the way, just like humans, you know, muscle strains and, and tendon strains, that kind of thing. Um, generally mild, but, you know, we're going through some pretty wild country sometimes. And, you know, if we go through an area where there's been some moose traveling through, they have these, we call them post holes where a moose has walked through and if a dog falls into one of those holes they can get injured pretty bad so yeah we're always we're always monitoring that and we have you know we have our own within our kennel we kind of have protocols that we kind of go by if a dog has an injury he has a you know a fair amount of time off to recover from that and it doesn't happen often but it's when it does happen it's something we certainly do our best to take care of Right, right. So how many dogs do you have at, at a time? I mean, do you have multiple teams or do you have a, a team that kind of rotates through multiple dogs? Well, we have, we have several teams, actually. So in our kennel, we have 60 dogs right now, and about 30 of them are training um, for bigger races. And then we have about 20 in our smaller, what I call their junior varsity group. They're training for some smaller races. And then beyond that, we have puppies and our retirees. And earlier you asked about the ages. Um, so they joined our team at about two years of age and they can, they can run competitively up to 10 or 11 years old. Wow. Really? Yeah. So we'll retire them. You know, it's very individual up kind of each dog, but, uh, yeah, usually between nine and 11. And then at that point, they'll go back to running with our junior varsity team for a year and train those guys up and then they'll enjoy retirement. That's cool. So how about a story about a time when things didn't go as planned? Well, let's see. In my rookie at Hidrod, <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, leaving a checkpoint called no Rome. And we're going across, to, uh, it's a series of rivers, and we get into an area called the Burn. And it's a, there's a big wildfire back, it's been about 20 years now, but it was hot enough where it burned out a lot of the seed material and things and it never really regenerated very well so there's a lot of wind that blows through there and the snow generally doesn't stick to the ground very well we were traveling across some of those lakes and we got on some ice and the wind started blowing the team sideways across this lake and i saw this stump coming and i i knew i couldn't stop i knew it was going to hit it and uh it hit the sled right on and the sled came over i landed on my head and the sled landed on me and in my semi-conscious state i did grab onto the sled because i knew the dogs were going to drag it away and uh the tug never came and i was able to look over the sled and i saw my team running off into the woods oh no and it was about another 60 miles to the checkpoint and i had no idea how far they'd go so i grabbed a couple little supplies and took off running behind them and it was seven or eight miles i finally caught up to them again they had they had stopped nicely alongside the trail. I came running over this hill and I saw this team and I assumed it was a, another team camping. And I was hoping, hoping, hoping that the musher that was with that team might have saw mine and got them stopped. And the closer I got, I realized it was my own group. So I had to, I took four dogs from that, that group and went back and got my sled and kind of pieced it together. And uh, the sled was destroyed to the point where there was nothing in front to hold it together. So basically it was two skis with a big bag dangling in front of it. And we took wow. us the burn, and the burn is home to a fairly large buffalo herd. 
And we're heading across there and with these skis kind of dangling out front, uh, the dogs were just having a great time because they were smelling the buffalo and they could, it was pretty dusty and dirty and they're having a great time. But my skis kept hitting uh, frozen buffalo crap and sent me rolling. <laughs> so <laughs> after having this major head and spine trauma, I got drug about halfway across the burn. And later in the race, I wasn't sure if I could continue on. My back injury was so bad. And I ran into a veterinarian who's also a chiropractor. And he managed to fix me up and got me dialed in. And we made it to know him with no problem. But uh, but that was a pretty wild time. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, how cool is it that they actually stopped? I mean, I, is that pretty rare that they that you would come across them like that? Or it, it was interesting because there was no tangles or anything else. I don't know if they just realized I wasn't there and decided to stop or or if they just decided it was time for a break. I have no idea. <laughs> wow, you would have been in for a haul had they not done that, though. That's exactly right. <laughs> and speaking of lead dogs, uh, we live right on the right near the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness, uh, which right. is on motorized area, and we spend a lot of time up there during the winter. And a few years ago, we go up there in the spring and do some fishing in late March, early April. And we were up there, and we had spent a couple days, and we are coming back out, and had it, it had warmed up where the ice was thawing away from a lot of the islands and the shores and i had this lead dog whom had led me all over the place he's a fabulous dog and i was trying to give him cues as to where to go to avoid the uh avoid the open water and i realized that he wasn't listening to me he was he was dialed in enough to where he knew where he was going so i just sat there and stayed quiet and he he navigated all that open water and got us about 35 miles back to back to our truck so it's a wow, that's cool. Pretty amazing when you see that instinctual uh, drive to get through something like that and avoid those some of those dangers. Yeah, absolutely. Our co-host Kurt interviewed uh, Paul Shirky. I don't know if you know who that is, but um, he interviewed him back in episode twenty-two. And Paul told a story about coming across a uh, you know military. Uh, it was like a radar outpost where a couple of guys were just uh, you know living in the bunker. And they had a, a dog that was essentially hanging around, you know, and they cook breakfast, cook dinner. The, the dog would show up. They'd throw him a scrap or two, and the dog would head out. And these guys on their sled dog team had uh, arrived and were talking to the to the guys, the military guys at the outpost. And when they left, the dog ended up following them. And they couldn't quite make friends with the dog, but it was just always kind of be off to their side and with them to some degree. But long story short, they – uh they ultimately um, befriended the dog and hooked him into the to the sled, and they said he pulled as a lead dog. They figured he had he was a stray that broke off of a team somewhere, and uh, they ended up using him for a long time after that. He was, was just a, such a good instinctual sled dog. It was just a really neat story. That's fantastic. There's one instance I was going across the Alaska Range through what's called Rainy Pass, and. Uh, the wind was so great. I could only see about four of my 16 dogs that I had in the team. And I had actually it was the same dog that I was just talking about on the ice in lead. And, uh, I, I really had to uh, trust him to keep us to the trail. And every so often I'd see, you know, tracks from other teams and, and, uh, other markers. And I had no idea where we're, where we were heading or, or where we would end up, but he, he got us where we needed to be. And partway through there, I went up to check on him to see how they're doing. And I, I got up to my lead dog, Jody was his name. And, uh, his eyes were totally packed with ice and, uh, from the blowing wind and snow. So I, so after that I had to start, I'd stop every couple minutes and just go up and <laughs> clean off his face and, 
and uh, give him a few words of encouragement and then go back to my sled where I couldn't see him any longer. And let... <laughs> but there's some pretty fabulous animals. They're outrageous. Yeah, sounds like they need some doggles, you know, the, no, the dog goggles. <laughs> we've experienced that, experimented with that with uh, limited success. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. I bet that doesn't work too well in that situation. Elevate Conditioning's mission is to construct customized exercise programs based on solid mechanics and general progression. These allow clients to improve athletic performance while addressing limiting factors. You may not be an elite athlete. You have personal and professional responsibilities that make demands on your time. That doesn't mean that you don't have athletic goals and a desire to improve. Elevate Conditioning is here to teach you how to train your body to be the most powerful, effective, and efficient vehicle possible. Additionally, Elevate offers small group training, wilderness fitness adventures, and long-distance sessions via video. Find out more at www.elevateconditioning.com. The Bearline Plus by 180 Tech is the handiest Bearline utility cord system you can find. This is not your typical Bearline. Our lightweight cord system is designed to be compact, lightweight, frictionless, and very versatile. Don't risk losing your dinner. Hang it the right way. The Bearline Plus is designed to suspend food between two trees up to 40 feet apart and 15 feet above the ground with much less effort than other Bearlines. Not only does the Bearline Plus keep your food away from bears, it is designed to be useful for many other needs including a motorcycle and ATV recovery system, tie-downs, straps, backpack repair, guy lines for tarp or tent, a tow line, block and tackle, and much, much more. Find your Bearline Plus at 180tech.com or retailers near you. So talking about weather, do they ever stop these races for weather, or is it pretty much anything goes and you just plow through? Well, generally speaking, it's anything goes, but you know, the last few years, the Iditarod has had to reschedule and move, uh, move the startup to Fairbanks a couple times. We've had our Bear Grease canceled and postponed. So you know, there is, you know, if there is a race change, generally it's because of warm weather, not cold weather or wind. Um. Yeah, but more of a lack of snow than more of a lack of snow. Too much of it. And actually, there's a there's a greater concern for the dogs when it starts to get warmer as well. They operate best in in cold temps, and there's a concern of overheating once it gets much above freezing. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. I wouldn't have thought of that. So, what about the races themselves? You've competed in a lot of different races. Would you consider the Iditarod the toughest of them, or is there another one that is just not as well-known in, in our, our community? Personally, I would consider the Yukon Quest to be the toughest of all the races. Um, it's something that's debated a lot among the distance racers, and I've run one Yukon Quest and several Iditarods, um, but the Yukon Quest, generally it's a bit colder. Um, it's a lot farther between checkpoints. Um, I believe the Iditarod has 26 checkpoints and, oh, I'm probably not correct on this, but Quest has about nine, I believe. So it's a lot, lot farther between checkpoints and it's much more remote. Um, a lot more mountains. Usually the snow is a bit deeper. Um, yeah, hands down, I would consider the Yukon Quest to be the toughest race. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. And you've run that one, um, you finished 11th in that one before? I believe so. Yeah. And how many people usually run that? 
Um, it depends. It goes from year to year, usually around 30, something like that. Yeah, that's pretty good. And it's, a, it's a much smaller, the Yukon Quest is a much smaller race as far as uh, entries. Um, I did or I'll have up to 90 entries a year, and uh, the Yukon Quest is considerably smaller. So it's a very okay. quaint race uh, as far as that goes. You know, the guys that race it are, uh, every year especially, are, are uh, pretty seasoned usually. The year I happened to run, I ran with a guy who ran, I believe he ran every quest up to that point. So it was like having a tour guide with me. The dynamics out on the trail, a lot of times, you know, the teams, there'll be a few teams that kind of just fall in together and end up on the same schedule running about the same speed. So there's all these little groups within within the race also. Yeah, yeah. A lot of these races seem to be... Um essentially commemorating something like the Iditarod is uh, it's the races to commemorate the, the run of the, the serum, you know, the diphtheria serum up to, to Nome, Alaska um, to retrace that, that trail. So a lot of these races, as I looked through, seem to have something that established them long ago, like a mail route or a gold rush route or something like that. Yeah. A lot of the trails that we travel on are trails that have been used for, for ages. And, uh, yeah, Diderot trail is one of them. It was most of those, most of the trail is on routes that have been used from village to village for, for thousands of years, probably. And the same is true with, uh, Yukon quest and the bear grease as well. Yep. Yeah. There's a lot of history there. Well, in my research, just looking through some of the information, I came across the red lantern award and this is for the, the last person to, to finish the Iditarod. It looks like the uh, the longest person, um, I should say, the person that took the uh, the most time to finish the race and win the Red Lantern Award was in '73 for 32 days and 15 hours. Right, that's a heck of a long time on a sled. It is a long time to be out on the trail. <laughs> you got to think that was back when the you know the the technology and the garments uh, were weren't quite what we have in 2015 too. So that's a <laughs> that's a pretty good accomplishment in and of itself, even if it's last. I think some of those guys that year were out actually uh, instead of sending caches of supplies out ahead of time, they were just hunting for their meat for the dogs as the, they went down the trail. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. Yeah, that's crazy. That's uh, that's that's been in. Uh, that race has been going on for a long time. Yes. So tips and tricks. Um, we went over a little bit about, you know, maybe if somebody were looking to get into to this, what uh, what are some tips and tricks that you would have from all of your experience doing it? Well, you know, really one of the best things for a person to do if they really wanted to get involved would be to get a mentor to start out with and someone that will share the information they've got and all the little the little things, the biggest of which is being, you know, being able to connect with your dogs and uh, have a good relationship with them. And, uh, and the rest is golden, really. <laughs> but as far as... Yeah, so establish that, that relationship with your team. And, and at that point, it's just a matter of training and running at that point, huh? Exactly. And, you know, there's just so many little things as far as uh, management of, of the dogs and the teams, both, you know, just when the within the kennel environment and uh, as route running and training and, and racing. So there's so many things that I realized that I learned as a handler, just um, following someone else around and picking up what the little things that they're doing that would have taken me a decade probably to learn on my own. And it would have taken a lot of mistakes and a lot of problems. <laughs> and it's the kind of thing that um, 
you know, people can get burned out on it if they have a lot too many negative experiences. So, so to avoid some of that, uh, some of that, uh, well, how do I say it? Um, Wasted time or energy. Time and energy and everything else. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 actually really good advice for any adventure sport. You know, we can get in over our heads on on things and try to re- reinvent the wheel when we really don't have to. You get a mentor, get somebody in there that that is a good guide or good trainer and knows what they're doing. It could really make the experience a, a heck of a lot better for you down the road. Exactly, and it's an expensive sport to get into. There's, you know, we don't really have any sponsors, um, so we work full time. But uh, some some mushers are able to pull that off. So it's a lot of out of pocket, and to go up and run a big race like I did rod takes a takes a substantial amount of money. So it's something we're not we're not set up to to do every year by any means. Yeah, you don't you don't take getting into it lightly, I'm sure. Exactly. So what's next on your plate? Well, this year um, I'll be going back to Russia. My wife's going to be doing most of the racing this year. My wife Jennifer, and uh, she'll be doing some races here in Minnesota and uh, Michigan. She'll probably go up and do some races in Canada. We've been doing this. It's a race called the Hudson Bay Quest. It's a 250-miler up in Churchill, Manitoba. And, uh, yeah, I'll be over in Siberia for a few weeks and uh, just keep on training for next year, I guess. Ah, that sounds awesome. Yeah, we won't be doing any major races this year. Okay. So let's tell people where they can find you guys. Um, They can find you, uh, Blake and Jennifer, um, at RacingSiberians.com, right? That's correct. And I can also be found on Facebook um, myself, and we also have a kennel page, which is Manitou Crossing Kennels. Okay, awesome. We'll get those linked up in the show notes for people to come visit you and follow along. And uh, hope to see you in your next race. Good, thank you very much. All right, so last question I have is, in all this experience, you and Jennifer have been doing this for a long time, there must be a good funny story involved. Oh boy! <laughs> so one of the best experiences for me was really um, running with Jennifer in the Iditarod. Like I said, we started about 14 minutes apart and finished just a few seconds apart, and we spent the whole race together. And it was it was really a great experience, filled with you know all kinds of highs and lows. And boy, you talk about testing a marriage—that's a good way to start. Yeah, absolutely. How long have you guys been married? Oh, let's see, since 2005. So, wow, right on. Well, that's a fun thing to share for you, too. No doubt. Yeah, it was a great experience. Good deal. All right, Blake. Well, I really appreciate you coming on and, and telling us about uh, dog sled racing and even skajoring. something I'll have to, to give a shot uh, to and see how that goes. All right. All right. Blake, take care. I appreciate it. Great. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks. All right, don't forget to send us an email to contest at adventuresportspodcast.com to enter your name into the drawing for that free lift ticket to Eldora Ski Area. Thanks for listening and good luck. Thanks for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Be sure to swing by iTunes and Stitcher to subscribe there so you can hear all of our episodes as they become available. And don't forget to share the Adventure Sports Podcast with your friends and family on Twitter and Facebook. Everybody deserves a little adventure in their ears. (music) 